Parshas Kisese. We'll begin Parshas Kisese by looking at some of the forbidden marriages. There are various nations that are forbidden to marry into the Jewish people. The Pesach says, Le'yavo Amoni Umo'avi Bekal Hashem. A person from Ammon or from Moab is not allowed to marry into the Kal Hashem. Gamdor Asiri, even a tenth generation, Le'yavolem Bekal Hashem Ad Olam. They are not allowed to marry into the Jewish people forever. So this is the highest level group of forbidden marriages. If an Ammon or Moab person converts, they're not allowed to marry into the Jewish people. And even the tenth generation is not allowed to marry in. Now we know from the Gemara that it's a Moavi man and not a Moavit woman. The Gemara makes a drush. In fact, that's why Rus, who was from Moab, was allowed to marry Boaz, even though she was from Moab, but it's a male from the Moab race, not a woman. But in any case, Ammon and Moab are cursed. They did something that was so egregious, so evil, that they're never allowed into the Jewish people. Now, the Pesach explains to us what it was that they did. They didn't come out to greet you with bread and water. And they appointed Bilam ben Baor. Now, the Rishon explained to us that Amon and Moab's real crime was the fact that they got the Jewish men to sin. Bilam tried to curse the Jewish people. It didn't succeed. Then he told the people of Moab, he gave them advice. Their God hates Arias. If you will get them to sin, their gods will be angry with them and then possibly will be able to uh, either destroy them or their own god will destroy them. At which point the Benos Moab, the daughters of Moab, <clears throat> began seducing the Jewish men and there came from this a tremendous magefa, an affliction, <clears throat> and thousands, 24,000 Jewish men died. <clears throat> that is the grave crime of Ammon and Moab, that they <clears throat> got the Jewish people to sin and the Rishonim explained to us, because of that, even the 10th generation, they're not allowed into the Jewish people. We'll call that group number one, the furthest extreme, Amon and Moab. The second group, a little bit later, the Torah says, <coughs> refers to Edom and the Mitzrim. The Pazaches in Perikov Gimel says, Adomi, Do not detest, do not hate a person from Edom. Why? Because he's your brother. In addition to which, don't detest a Mitzri, because you are a ger in his land. Children born to them, to either Edom or to a Mitzri, the third generation is allowed into the Kal of Hashem. So Edom is considered your brother. Because they're your brother, they're allowed in to marry the Jewish people. However, it's only the third generation that they're allowed in. So this second group, Edom and Mitzrim, are different than Ammon and Moab, meaning Ammon and Moab, Moab are cursed and forever and not allowed to marry into Jewish people. Edom is different. Edom and the Mitzrim, after the third generation, they're allowed in. Now the Rishonim explained to us why it is that Edom and the Mitzrim are different than a regular Gentile, meaning if a regular guy converts, he or she is allowed to marry a regular Jewess. There's no prohibition against a Jew marrying a Gentile that converts. Yet there is a prohibition against marrying Edom and Mitzrim. Now, Edom and Mitzrim, they're not cursed as badly as Ammon and Moab, but it's not until the third generation, meaning if an Edom, Edomite or a Mitzri converts, he or she is forbidden to marry into the Jewish people. However, the third generation after from them is allowed. So why is it that they're not allowed immediately to marry in? 
And the answer is because they killed the Jews. Edom and Mitzrim both were involved in killing the Jews. Edom, when they attempted literally to kill the Jews, the Mitzrim, when we were in Mitzrayim, there was quite a lot of Jewish blood spilled. So these nations are considered, again, not as bad as Ammon and Moab, but still pretty bad. And for that reason, it's not until three generations that they're allowed to marry in. Now, there's an incredibly important Rashi on this Pasuk that is very, very eye-opening. Rashi makes the following observation. Amun, Moab, and Edom really are the same, meaning to say they all have a certain relationship to the Jewish people. And if you look from Avram's lineage, they all have a certain proximity, a certain closeness to Avram, and they're all achichahu, they're all the brother. However, Amun and Moab are cursed until the 10th generation. Edom is only till the 3rd generation. Why is it? Kiachichu. Well, they're all achicha. So obviously the crime of Ammon and Moab is far worse than the crime of Edom. What did Edom try to do? Edom tried to kill the Jewish people. What did Ammon and Moab do? Ammon and Moab got the Jewish people to sin. Says Rashi the following. Alamadata, this teaches us, Shemachti la'adam kashalom minahorgo. One who gets a person to sin is worse than one who killed him. Why? Shahorgo, horgo balamazeh. If I kill a person here... I'm killing him in this world. If I get him to sin, if I get him to sin, so I'm taking him out of this world and the world to come. It's for that reason, explains Rashi, Edom, who approached the Jewish people to kill them, they approached with swords, aren't considered so despicable. The Torah says, don't hate them. And so to Mitzrayim, even though Mitzrayim attempted to drown the Jewish babies, and they did, Nevertheless, they're not hated, and after three generations, they're allowed in. But these people who cause the Jewish people to sin, who cause the Jewish people to sin, they're hated, and they're always never allowed into the Jewish people. So Rashi is telling us a rather profound concept. If you want to judge Ammon and Moab versus Edom, Ammon and Moab are far worse, and again, that's why they're not, never allowed into the Jewish people. Edom is allowed in because what they did was not as egregious. And says Rashi, this teaches us the scale of measure in Shemayim. Edom attempted to kill the Jewish people. That's bad, but not so bad. However, Ammon and Moab are far worse because they attempted to get the Jewish people to sin. And that's where we learn the principle that getting one to sin is far worse than getting him, than actually killing him. Now, if you think of that from our perspective, it should be rather perplexing meaning to say we're very familiar with the concept of causing someone to sin. And it's certainly an Avera, it's only a bad thing, but at the end of the day, it's not murder. <laughs> meaning to say, Edom came to murder. Edom came out with swords drawn to kill the Jewish people, and Lule, if it weren't for Hashem's special help, we would have been dead man, woman, and child. They would have slaughtered the entire nation gladly. They're not such a shame. But Ammon and Moab, oh, they got the Jewish people to sin. They're so wicked that they're never allowed to come in. At the end of the day, it's only a sin. It's not, I mean, to say it's not murder. And yet what we see from here is the exact opposite. You see, when Hashem created us, it was for a particular reason. Hashem put us on this planet for a few short years to grow and accomplish, and forever we are what we shape ourselves into here. This life that we lead has a very specific purpose. We're here to grow, we're here to accomplish. At the end of the day, murder is a horrible thing. Murder takes a person's life. And without getting involved in Hashem's, you know, allowing a person to, in theory, shorten a person's life, murder is a serious and severe crime. However, what the Torah is teaching us is, 
it's far worse to get him to sin. Why? Because getting him to sin is something that destroys him in this world and destroys him in the world to come. And Pshuto Kimashmo, just a simple understanding of this Rashi, is eye-opening, especially in our generation. Um, In our generation, and you'll excuse me for being a little too timely, but just recently there was a website that was hacked. This website bragged about doing one thing. It allowed married men and married women to have an affair. As a matter of fact, their excuse my little pet, but their opening tagline is "Life is short, have an affair." And meaning, what they did was they promised anonymity and they promised to allow you to have an affair, meet somebody, and have an affair without anyone finding out. And because it'd be all secret, your spouse wouldn't know about it. Okay. Now it happens to be that hackers broke into this site and they made public the names of the people who had used the site, the 35 million people who had used the site. Now, when the site found this out, it became a major news issue, and the site issued a proclamation. What these people have done is not just hacking in, it's criminality, and it will be punished to the full extent of the law. And what they were saying in plain language is, these hackers who broke into our code are criminals. Look what they've done. They've broken into our secrets, and they've let people, you know, let the world know, and all kinds of bad things are going to come out of it, and therefore it's criminal, and we have a full intention to prosecute this to the full extent of the law. And the ultimate irony of this is that in the crazy times we live in, having a website that doesn't just promote adultery, but actually encourages it, aids and abets it, is not a crime. Now you have to recognize something. When a man... marries a woman, whether it's a Torah marriage or even a common law marriage, you go to in front of the justice of the peace, what you're doing is you're giving your word to your spouse. You're committing yourself to your spouse in the words of the courts here, till death do us part. The point being, it's a firm commitment with all of your honesty, integrity, whoever you are as a person, you're promising your spouse to be loyal to them. And then there is a website that has been created and exists with the sole purpose of destroying marriages, destroying families, and breaking that down, making it easy. Now, listen, there is a concept called taiva. I understand that. I recognize that. And I recognize people making mistakes, people giving in. I, I understand that. But you're talking about the height of evil. You're discussing a website whose sole purpose exists to make it easier for people who are in a whatever Whatever their drive, whatever their motive is, it makes it possible and easy for them to cheat on their spouse, to destroy marriages, to destroy families. And there's no question that this website is an evil, evil place. But I think when you focus what this on this Rashi, what this Rashi is telling us is you have no idea how criminal it is what they're doing. You see, what they're doing is aiding and abetting a man or a woman in destroying their marriage and breaking their vows and destroying a family. Children brought up in divorce homes are damaged. Children brought up in the aftermath of these things are not the same. These websites exist for the purpose of destroying everything that is significant for a family. And what they are is the most evil kind of thing imaginable. And if you want to put it into its parallel, imagine we had a website whose sole purpose was to aid and abet in murder. And let's assume their tagline was, listen, there are people you don't like. 
we'll help you kill them. We'll make a little shidduch between you and a murderer. Listen, you don't have the connections, but you want Bob dead. We have the connections. All you do, you go on a private website, and you'll get to hire your murderer, and you'll decide how you want that person killed, whether by knife point, strangling, maybe thrown off a cliff, and you get to pick the time and the day, and we'll make the shidduch for you. We'll, We'll be the website to help you murder people. Now, obviously, if there was such a website... And it would be immediately closed down. What are you kidding me? Murder? You, sugar? You having? How could how could a society exist where you have such a, such a concept? And what Rashi is telling us is this website is far worse because it's being mocked. It's destroying lives. It's destroying morality. It's far worse than murder. Now, granted, it's not the same cheshbon because a Jew has olam haba, and maybe you'll tell me. The average Gentile doesn't necessarily, unless he keeps his eye mitzvahs b'nei noach. But the concept still remains that to get someone to sin is far worse because you're destroying his this world as well as whatever potential future. And I think with this Rashi alone, just a simple shot is highly relevant and highly significant to understand it in perspective. But I think there's another step from this Rashi that's also even maybe more important for us. And that is that we know that whatever is on the negative is many more times on the positive. Meaning to say, if I get someone to sin, it's worse than murder. What if I get them to do good? What if I get them to keep Torah mitzvahs? What if I get them to learn? What if I get them to daven? So obviously what I've done is I've given them this world and the world to come. So if in fact Rashi is telling us that it's far worse to get a person to sin than to murder him, then obviously what it means is, on the flip side, if I get someone to do tshuva, if I get someone to keep mitzvahs, if I help them, it's even more significant than saving a life. And again, on a very simple level, without getting too far, we know that saving a life is one of the greatest accomplishments in the world. Chazal tell us that a matzil nefesh echas Yisrael, saving one Jewish life, is considered ke'ilu, you save the entire world. That's in a physical plane. If you join Hatzalah and you're involved in life-saving activities, you're a great person for that. And those actions are phenomenal and they have tremendous weight and measure. And what this Rashi is telling us is, as great as that is, if you're involved in some level of kiruv, whether it be a neighbor, whether it be a friend, whether it be your own son, whether it be a boy in that you know from shul, if you're involved in helping them grow, keeping them on the derah, keeping them where they should be, that's greater than saving their life. And in fact, you are a, an atzala, but not just atzala in this world, atzala in the world to come. And again, just a simple reading of it is eye-opening and significant to remember and understand. However, there's one more step in these psukim that is even more eye-opening. See, the Torah tells us, don't hate the Edomite. Why? Because achichahu. Don't hate the Mitzri. Why? Because you are ger in his land. Meaning to say, Edom you have a relationship with because through Avram Avinu, Edom was from that same family, so to speak. So even though they tried to kill you, Lamaisi, you shouldn't hate them because they're your brother. What about the Mitzrim? Right? The Mitzrim were not your brother. There's no relationship between Avram and the Mitzrim. So why is it that we shouldn't hate them? After all, they did kill Jews, and we should hate them as we hate Ammon and Moab. And the answer is, because nevertheless, you were a ger in his land. You lived in the Mitzrayim land. Rashi says, 
listen, Lamaisa, you live there. <clears throat> Even though it is true that they threw the male <clears throat> boys into the Nile, right? <clears throat> Paro at a certain point made that decree, <clears throat> any male born, born <clears throat> should be thrown into the Nile. <clears throat> Nevertheless, <clears throat> Nevertheless, you had a place to sleep there, even though it was rough, even though it was, <clears throat> was difficult. Lamaisa, <clears throat> you had a place to live there. You had a chsanya, you had food, you had place to, to remain, and therefore you shouldn't hate the Mitzrim, and therefore third generation is allowed in. Now, this Rashi is rather difficult to understand. Why? Because if you think about Achsanya, you'll quickly recognize that it's a difficult concept to understand. You see, what the Torah is telling us is you shouldn't hate the Mitzri because you lived in their land. So, number one, our living in the land was extremely, extremely difficult. We were slaves. We were whipped. We were beaten. We worked for every ounce of bread. We were hated. We were detested. It's very hard to look back on that with a sense of appreciation. But even if you tell me, well, nevertheless, we lived there, just a very important observation, the reason why the Mitzram kept us there was not to benefit us. We were slaves. The midstream economy was based on slave labor, and we were the slaves. We were the engine that drove their economy, meaning to say the only reason they gave us beds in which to sleep was that we could work. The only reason they gave us food is that we could labor in the fields. They weren't feeding us for our good. They weren't giving us a place to live for our benefit. They couldn't care less about us. In fact, all we were to them was chattel. We were slaves. So with that in mind, does it make sense that we should have eternal eternal recognition for the good they did to us because we had a place to sleep and food to eat. The food that we ate was bitter. The beds we slept in was with oppression and torture. And everything that they did wasn't for our good. It was for their benefit. So what appreciation of the good should we have? Everything they did, they did for themselves and not for us. And I believe this Rashi underscores a very critical concept in Akar Satov. In recognizing the good, there are two separate issues. There's what you intended and what I benefited from. Your intention is a major factor in Akar Satov, but my benefit from you is another factor. The main factor in Akar Satov is recognizing your intention to help me. If you wanted to help me, you wanted to benefit me, I have to recognize that and I have to appreciate that. And in fact, the Chovah Zavavos explains to us that if you attempted to help me and you weren't able to be successful, I still have an obligation to appreciate it because you wanted to. The thought was there. And the opposite, if I benefit from you and you didn't intend, I have much less in Akar Satov because you didn't really mean it. So it happens to be true that the main issue of Akar Satov has to do with your intention to help me. Nevertheless, there's a second element to Akar Satov, and that is recognizing the good that I received, regardless of what your intentions were. <clears throat> Meaning to say, if I received a good, and even though you didn't intend it to me, <clears throat> it's true that most of the obligation isn't there, but it's still upon me an obligation to recognize what I received, and <clears throat> to recognize what, in fact, I have. Now, I believe that this concept is critical because <clears throat> one of the strange things in our generation is that we've never had it better than any time before in history. In the course of history, there's never been this much freedom, opportunity, there's never been this much wealth, there's never been this much 
all of us live a life of Ashiras. If you take a life of people living 300 years ago and then compare it to ours now, there's almost no basis for comparison. We live in homes that are luxurious. We eat food of the finest fare. Kings of yesteryear could not imagine or envision the type of luxuries that the common tax-paying citizen in our society enjoys today. Yet, here's one of the amazing things. Ask someone today, are you rich? Rich? <laughs> I can barely afford my mortgage, barely afford my kids' tuition. Rich? <clears throat> Do you enjoy luxury? Luxury? Are you kidding? And here's the strange part of it. <clears throat> Every one of us enjoys clothing, <clears throat> homes, cars, food. <clears throat> we have luxuries at our fingertip. We have <clears throat> things that are um, incredible, and yet, <clears throat> by and large, we don't appreciate it at all. And I believe the biggest reason for this is something that the Chavaz of Avaz explains to us, and that is because we're not focused on recognizing the good. You see, every human being by nature is extremely, extremely appreciative. I'm, I'm so grateful, it's unbelievable. If you would do anything for me, I'm the most grateful person in the world. The problem that we have is I don't see anything that you do for me. Meaning, if I would have anything good in my life, I'd be so I'd be so happy, so appreciative, so grateful. The problem is I have nothing in my life, and the problem that we have isn't being grateful. The problem that we have is we don't recognize the good that we have, and it's very illustrative because the concept that Chazal used for this is something called hakaras hatov, recognizing the good. Chazal don't tell us we have to work on being appreciative. They don't tell us we have to work on being grateful. That's instinctive and that's natural to the human. What we have to work on is seeing the good and recognizing that I have vast amounts of wealth. That I have clothing, and I have food, I drive a car that's luxurious to an extent that a hundred years ago was unimaginable. I have at my fingertips technological advances that are just astonishing. But I have to train my eye to recognize those benefits. I have to train my eye to recognize the good that I enjoy. I have to train myself that when I open my eyes in the morning to look at this world and say it's wondrous. Look at the beauty that Hashem put into this world. Look at the benefits that Hashem put here for me to enjoy. But that's regardless of the intention of the one who's giving it to me. Strictly the fact that I am the recipient, strictly the fact that I'm enjoying all of this good is something that I have to train myself in. And I believe that's what Rashi is telling us over here. Yes, it's true, the Mitzrim intentions were bad. They only intended to give you the food and the bed because they wanted to work you, and it wasn't for your benefit. But at the end of the day, you received it. So it's true from their perspective, they didn't intend you any good, and you don't owe them anything from that perspective. But for your own training and your own recognition, you received the benefit. And to train yourself in recognizing the good, you have to recognize that, remember it. And in fact, that's why a mitzri is allowed in after the third generation, because we did benefit from them, and we have to remember that, and we have to keep that in mind. And again, in our day and age especially, this is a very, very eye-opening concept, because again, it's so powerfully different than the way that we normally think. And it's so powerfully almost strange, because again, we're so used to things, and we become so accustomed, they stop having any meaning to us. Now, on the historical perspective, I want to do one more little observation. At the very end of this week's parsha, the Torah says, 
When Hashem will cease from you all your enemies from around, and Hashem will give you a nachala, a inheritance for you to keep. You shall wipe out the memory of a Molek from under the sky and don't forget it. So basically when you go into Eretz Yisrael and you are secure, then you should eradicate a Molek and you shouldn't forget this. And this is the mitzvah of Mechias Zecher Molek, of destroying a Molek and not forgetting uh, to destroy it. Now the question is, why should we destroy a Molek? Why should the Torah be so makbid? Why should the Torah give us a specific mitzvah to destroy, to eradicate a molek? Eradicate not just a molek, but eradicate any remembrance of a molek. So the simple understanding is because a molek was evil, a molek attacked us, and any amaleki still around has that evil trait within him. And that is definitely true. There is a concept of racism, which is absolutely a Torah concept. Racism means that there are certain races that have a tendency towards certain types of behaviors, certain <clears throat> predefined <clears throat> ways of acting. Now, <clears throat> I have a Mesorah from my Rebbe, the Roshiva Zatzal. <clears throat> we don't hate any people for any reason, but <clears throat> there definitely are traits that different nations have. A Molik has a trait of evil, <clears throat> and the simple understanding of this Psukim is that that trait of evil is so present within Amalek that whenever they're around, they will be a threat to the Jewish people, and therefore you should eradicate them because you're eradicating evil. Now, while that's true, the Sforno here makes a very interesting point, and he says there's another concept that the Torah is teaching us here. The Torah is teaching us, to take revenge from Amalek, Asheheiz Panov, because they had tremendous chutzpah against Hashem. Kimakanim lechvodo. When we do it, we are taking revenge for Hashem's honor. Explains the Sforno that when we are commanded to wipe out the memory of Amalek, it's not simply to eradicate them because they're evil, but there's more than that. We're supposed to be taking revenge because they had the audacity to attack God's people. And when we take revenge against them, we're standing up for the honor of Hashem. Meaning to say, this was God's anointed people. When the Jewish people left Nitzrayim, everyone knew that this was Hashem's chosen nation. Hashem brought them out with tremendous miracles. And these Amalekim had the audacity to attack God's people. It's an affront to Hashem himself. If it could be, therefore, when we take revenge, we're seeking the honor of Hashem. We're taking the honor of Hashem into account. And that's certainly at least part of the intention when wiping out Amalek. Now, if you think about this forno, it should be rather difficult to understand. Why? Because what this forno is saying is, we now, thousands of generations later, are still commanded in this mitzvah. Now, today, as we stand here now, we don't know who Amalek is. And therefore, the mitzvah, I guess, in a very real sense, doesn't apply practically. However, Mashiach will come to Hashem shortly. At that point, it will be clear who Amalek is. And the mitzvah, at least in theory, will apply again. So here's the problem. We're now thousands of years later. Amalek is gone. that We can't even find them. What do you mean we have to stand up for the honor of Hashem, take the revenge of Hashem? It's something that happened thousands of years ago 
something that's long forgotten. We can't even find these people. What do you mean? We still have to remember to eradicate their memory because by doing so, we're standing up for the honor of Hashem. It's an event that happened long, long ago. And what I believe this Sorna is teaching us is that the historical record is different than our memory. Meaning, we live in the ADD generation. If it happened yesterday, it's ancient history. If it happened this morning, I might remember part of it, but we live extremely in the moment, and what happened a year ago or 10 years ago is forgotten. However, that's not really the way of the world. When I leave this earth, when my body's put in the ground, and I separate, every single memory of my existence comes rushing back. From the time I was a little boy, when I was a teenager, a young man, a middle-aged man, an old man, every event in my life, every conversation with another human being comes rushing back because every action that I was involved in, every thought that I had is a part of me, and it doesn't disappear. In the current condition that I live in, in this temporary body, I'm fooled into thinking that because I forget something, it's gone. But it's not gone. What I've done, what I've said, for the good or for the bad, is part of me forever. And what the Surah is teaching us is that there's a long historical record. What a Amalek did remains on the record. We may not remember it now because we're living in flesh and blood clothing. And there's very little that we remember. But the mark was made in the world. Every action remains. Everything leaves its imprint. And there's still a need to take the revenge for Hashem's honor because Hashem's honor was greatly put down in that time because what they did was they attacked God's people and that still remains upon us an obligation to stand up for Hashem's honor. And again, what the Son is teaching us is that no action that happens is just forgotten and just disappears. There's a long historical record. And again, I think it's a huge concept for us to understand in terms of our own in the future, in terms of every action that I do. And it's a huge concept in terms of understanding how it is that the Torah views people's actions vis-a-vis the rest of the world. Let's move on to another concept. The Pasuk says, If you build a new house, you should make a fence for your gag, for your roof. You shouldn't place blood in your house. What does that mean? You shouldn't place blood in your house. Because the faller will fall from your roof, and therefore you shouldn't place blood. This is the mitzvah of Maka Lagagecha, meaning to say, in those times, and certainly in the times of the Gemara, the roofs of houses were basically flat, and that's where a lot of things were done, meaning it was considered like another room, it was obviously an outdoor area, but the roofs of houses were basically flat, and the Torah commands us to put a market to put a fence around the gog. Why? Because someone will go up there and that someone might fall. Put a fence so that he doesn't fall. But it's interesting to note that the way the Torah refers to it is don't place blood in your house because the faller will fall from it. Meaning the faller will fall. Put up a fence so that the faller doesn't fall. Now Rashi is bothered by why are you calling this man Hanofel, the faller. <clears throat> Explains Rashi, Roy Zelipo, this man who fell was worthy to fall. <clears throat> Meaning to say, <clears throat> it was slated that he was supposed to die. <clears throat> Nevertheless, 
do not be the one through your hand that his death comes about. Why? They bring about good things through innocent people and bad things through chayev people. Now this is a very important concept. And that concept is that this person who fell off your house, assuming you didn't put up a gag, and a person falls, he was slated to fall. As a matter of fact, the may say, he might have been slated to fall from years and years earlier. But nevertheless, if in fact you did not put up a fence, on some level you're considered chayev, you're considered a person who was involved in his death, even though he was slated to fall, don't you be the one to cause it, because it will come back to haunt you, you'll be the one who's considered doing it. And in a very real sense, as Rashi is difficult to understand, because again, if this person was slated to fall, Hashem deemed it appropriate. So if I didn't put up a fence, obviously what happened was supposed to happen. Why then would that be the reason why the Torah obligates me to put up a fence? And I believe what this Rashi underscores is a huge concept in understanding man's free will. And to illustrate that, let me give you the following example. Imagine I wake up one morning and decide I don't like Shimon, but I really don't like him. And I've decided to end his life. And I go over to him and I pull out a handgun and I hold it to his chest and I say, you know, you're a no good Nick. And I call him every name in the book. And he says, no, no, don't, don't, don't. And I pull the trigger and I shoot him dead. You see him fall into a puddle on the floor. Happens to be there are two witnesses. And let's even assume they gave me a straw. They gave me warning and they hold me into Bazdim. Hold me into the Sanhedrin, and these witnesses say, we saw you did it, we know you're intentional, and Bazdin is about to paskin that I'm a murderer. At which point I turn to the grand rabbis of the Sanhedrin, and I say, Robosai, dear honored rabbis, it seems to me that all of you are orthodox. Why, it appears to me that you're all quite learned, all 23 of you. Uh, I'd like to ask a very simple question. Doesn't Hashem run the world? Is it possible for me to have ended a life if Hashem didn't deem it appropriate? It's obvious from the fact that I succeeded in murdering this person, obviously he was slated to die. So how dare you accuse me of being a murderer when all I've done is carried out God's will? Hashem wished for him to die, all I did was carry out his will, so obviously I'm an innocent man, please do not bring any verdict against me. Here's the question. What would the Sanhedrin, Katana, what would the Beisdin say to me? So what they should say to me is the following. You're absolutely correct. There's no question whatsoever that had Hashem not deemed it appropriate for this person to die, you would not have been successful. Nevertheless, you're his murderer. Meaning to say, that's the way Hashem runs the world. You see, on Rosh Hashanah, Hashem determines many, many different situations. And this person's fate was determined on the previous Rosh Hashanah. If he was slated to live, if he was slated to die. But not only is his fate determined, but it's determined in the exact manner. And oftentimes, it's allowed to be open to different people. Meaning to say, it might well be that the previous Rosh Hashanah, this person's fate was deemed appropriate to die a violent death. And then sometimes Hashem will allow different people to be on the scene there to carry out that decree. Now, if in fact I wasn't there, or if I was there and I decided not to pull the trigger on the gun, that person's fate was sealed and he would have died, whether by car crash, a lightning bolt would have hit him, a 
tree would have fallen, he was slated to die, that would have happened. Nevertheless, Hashem often will allow another person to be there to pull the trigger. If I didn't do it, he would have died anyway. But if I did do it, that death is attributed to me. Even though had I not done it, he would have died anyway. Nevertheless, I'm considered responsible. To allow for free will, Hashem will allow people to be the puller of the trigger. And that act will be attributed to them even though that same result would have happened, but again, to allow for reward and punishment, to allow for free will, Hashem will allow different people to be on the scene at the time. And what Rashi is telling us is exactly that concept. This person who went up on your gag is a no-fell. And if he falls off, it means that Hashem determined long ago that this person was to die. Nevertheless, don't you be the one who causes his death. Put up a fence. Why? Because if you don't put up a fence, you're negligent. And if you're negligent, on some level you're considered as murderer. I, he's a no-fell, he would have fallen anyway. That's 100% true. Nevertheless, Hashem brings about good things through innocent people, bad things through bad people. We have to understand that Hashem runs every single activity on the planet. And nevertheless, we have to understand that Hashem allows people free will. And if I'm the one who pulls the trigger on the gun, that act is attributed to me. If I don't put up a fence on my roof and someone falls, it's considered on some level that I'm his killer, albeit Bishogeg, and I'm certainly going to push him off the roof, but it's considered on some level attributed to me. And again, this is the concept that while Hashem determines every outcome, the intentions and the decisions are often up to man. And I'd like to finish this parsha with one last observation from a very different part of the parsha. The Torah says, Kikach ish isha chadasha, and if a man takes a new woman, man marries a, a, a wife, and he shouldn't go out to war, and he shouldn't have any communal obligations put on him, he should be clean, and he shouldn't have any obligations, he should be to his house for one entire year, and he should make happy his wife, that he took. This is the concept of Shana Rishona, that when a man marries a woman the very first year, he's obligated to be involved as little as he can outside the house. Uh, as the Sefer Chinuch explains it, he should spend as much time possibly with his wife. And the actual obligation is v'simach es ishto. And Rashi says, what does it mean he should make happy his wife? Yismach es ishto, don't make a mistake. It means it doesn't mean he should party with his wife. It doesn't mean he should be happy with his wife. He should make happy his wife. The actual obligation of the man during Shana Shona is to make his wife happy. And again, the Sefer Achinuch and other Shonim explain that this is a huge toelis for Shalom bias. It starts the marriage on the right foot on a number of levels. It's a very integral part of a successful marriage. Now, if you think about this Rashi, I think you should ask the obvious question. If you were giving a young man advice for Shalom Bayes, and you were giving him a year's mission, what would you tell him to do? I would imagine you tell him you should learn all kinds of Muslims for him, learn all kinds of, take all kinds of Shalom Bayes classes, learn all about women and men and the dynamics of a marriage, and there are many pieces of advice that you would give him. But I doubt that the single piece of advice that you would give him is, for the next year, all I want you to do is concentrate on making your wife happy. I mean, happiness is nice, it's a wonderful idea, but how is that going to be the major contributor towards Shalom Bayes? And the answer to this question is based on understanding what really brings about Shalom Bayes. 
And as an aside, I just want to mention the marriage seminar is available at theshmooz.com. The marriage seminar is a 12-part series that the Shmooz came out with on marriage, and it's very comprehensive, and I highly recommend it. But let's just focus on answering this question. The Rambam in Hilchos Ishus says that Chazal obligated a man and Chazal obligated a woman in certain behaviors. And says the Rambam, if you follow this formula, I guarantee you'll have a beautiful, successful marriage. <clears throat> Explains the Rambam, Chachamim obligated Adam ishto kegufo. Chazal obligated a man to honor his wife more than himself and love her as he does himself. That's his obligation. His obligation is to honor his wife <clears throat> to extreme more than himself and to love her as himself. So too, Chazal gave an obligation on the wife <clears throat> that she should treat her husband with extreme honor. She should look at him like he's almost like he's a sire, like he's some kind of prince, <clears throat> some kind of king. She should think, what could I do to do his bidding? He should, she should treat him with extreme honor. So <clears throat> this is the Rambam's formula. The man should respect his wife more than himself and love her as he does himself. And a woman should treat a husband with extreme respect. Now let's start analyzing this Rambam for a minute. Why is it that the Rambam would say that a woman is obligated to treat her husband with extreme respect? That's not what they obligated the man in. The man has to treat her with respect more than himself, granted, but he has to love her more. And yet the opposite, a woman has to treat her husband with extreme respect, and there seems to be no obligation to actually love her husband. Chazal never gave an obligation to, uh, for a woman to love her husband. It sounds rather strange. Is, she, is she supposed to be in a loveless marriage? So I believe the understanding of this Rambam is predicated on understanding the basics of a human being. Men and women are different. Men and women are different fundamentally, categorically, in the way they think, in the, their emotional realm, and what they value. Men and women are from different planets. And men and women have very different needs in the relationship. In the world is something called a male ego. A male needs respect. When a man knows that his wife respects him, there's a certain calm, there's a certain happiness, he's able to function within a marriage. That's what a man needs from his wife. What a woman needs from a husband is very, very different. The stipler going in his letter writes, the main hope of a woman in her world is to have a husband who loves her. When she sees that it isn't so, it crushes her spirit and can be close to Bikoch Nefesh. You see, what the stipler is defining is the very nature of a woman. A woman is a caregiver. A woman is a nurturer. And a woman craves relationships. A woman needs to know that she's cherished, that she's loved. When a woman knows that she's cherished, that she's loved, there's a sense of joy in her heart, and it's obvious, and it's an instinctive reaction that she's going to love her husband. Chazal do not have to obligate a woman to love her husband because it's instinctive. Once the husband treats her appropriately and properly, automatically she's going to love her husband. <clears throat> what does she need to be treated with? <clears throat> she, needed to, she needs to feel that she's cherished, that she's loved. <clears throat> if she feels that she's cherished, if she feels that she's loved, <clears throat> automatically she'll love back, and that's what a woman needs. What a man needs in the relationship <clears throat> is something different. He needs respect. 
when each does their part, then the relationship is Meshubuch and Noah and etc. But let's focus on exactly this step. How does a man let his wife know that she's loved and she's cherished? So watch the following. Imagine a man gets married and he spends his entire time focused on this. What could I do to make my wife happy? How does she like things to be arranged? How does she like the house to be? How does she like the food to be? How does she want it to be? What could I do to make her happy? If a man does that, what a woman hears loud and clear is, my husband cherishes me. He loves me. He's so concerned. All he wants is my happiness. Obviously, he loves me. He cherishes me. If a woman feels that instinctively and automatically, she will love her husband. She'll love him, and that respect, that love will be mutual. She has to be careful because he has a male ego, and she has to be tread very carefully, and she has to treat him with extreme honor because if she doesn't, there's going to be repercussions. But provided she doesn't step on his delicate ego, she'll love him back, and that love in the marriage will grow, and they'll have a beautiful marriage. But you see, it's an automatic in the woman, and it's not so much in the man. But this is the point. If you'd like to understand this Rashi, what Rashi is telling us is, a man should think in these terms, how could I make my wife happy? Why? Because that's going to show her this key concept. I'm concerned for her benefit. I cherish her. I love her. Once that happens, once she knows she's cherished, she's loved, she'll love back, and everything will be beautiful. I've dealt with, at this point, hundreds of couples, and I can't tell you how many times I see this over and over. When a woman feels that she's loved, she's cherished, she's happy, if she has everything else under the sun, but not that, she's miserable and unhappy. And the the obligation of a husband is to let his wife know that she's cherished. Obviously, a wife has an obligation also, and she has to be careful And you have to fundamentally understand each other's needs. But again, I believe what this Rashi is teaching us is that the very essence of a woman, she craves the relationship. She needs to know that she's cherished and she's loved. Once that's there, she'll be a happy wife. A happy wife is a happy life because she'll love her husband and she'll do for him whatever it is that he needs. Hopefully she'll be wise enough to realize that he has different needs than she has. And she'll be careful not to be critical, not to be... too helpful in shaping him and molding him into what he, she thinks he should be because that is a gross lack of respect. But again, if she remembers that our job is to respect her husband, Yosemi Dai, to be excessively respectful to him, she will show, he will show her that she's cherished. She will show him that he is honored and they will have a beautiful Noah Meshubach marriage. And in fact, that's what Rashi is teaching us that the actual mitzvah is the simach as ishto, that he should make her happy during the course of that year.